Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're spoon-feeding you some of the latest research. Quick, let's take a look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this week. Only four articles this week, because apparently in the United States they have this Thanksgiving thing, which is a lot later than when I had it up in Canada, because I had it like a month ago. Anyways, you guys do it late, no sweat. First off, in vomiting children, how often is it just a virus? Then, trying to be a little bit more sure your patient doesn't have cauda equina. Third, a full MRI is hard to do in kids, but what about a fast MRI for working up kids with headaches? And then the last article from this week will be, yet again, is there any point to giving lots of Ketorolac? This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the lively Rachel Jennings, Carmen Wolf, and Clay Smith. Now then, the first article titled, Microbial Ideologies and Clinical Characteristics of Children Seeking Emergency Department Care Due to Vomiting in the Absence of Diarrhea out of the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. A favorite diagnosis for isolated vomiting in children, as well as in adults, is acute gastroenteritis, which leaves us telling patients that despite the mid-mild exorcism-type state that their child is currently in, they need not worry because it's just a virus, which I'm really trying to scrub from my vocabulary after a global pandemic was caused by just a virus. So that saying doesn't really hold much water anymore. Isolated vomiting is a presentation that could be other stuff, though. It could be a raised ICP, it could be a UTI. How often is it actually just a virus? This trial was a retrospective study of about 2,700 children from two Canadian emergency departments with symptoms of vomiting and or diarrhea, which also received molecular testing of their stools or by rectal swab if there was no diarrhea. The group most likely to be positive for an enteropathogen were those with vomiting and diarrhea, from which 81% tested positive for a virus. If the children had isolated vomiting or isolated diarrhea, then they tested positive just over half of the time. Norovirus was the most common culprit for isolated vomiting. If the child had isolated vomiting, then it was more likely that they received additional testing as well, like a urinalysis or imaging. And this honestly was appropriate, because in this group, the isolated vomiting group, they were the most likely to have an alternative diagnosis that was actionable. And they found those in 6% of these children. The most common was a UTI. In a spoonful, if you tell the parents of a child with isolated vomiting that it's just a virus, then you'll be right at least half the time. Although with isolated vomiting, there is a 6% chance that they have an alternative diagnosis that you could act upon. The most common is going to be a UTI. Then the second article titled Determination of Potential Risk Characteristics for Cauda Equina Compression in Emergency Department Patients Presenting with Atraumatic Back Pain, a four-year retrospective cohort analysis within a tertiary referral neurosciences center out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Much to many patients' misunderstanding, coming to the emergency department is not really about figuring out what you have, but rather what you don't have which is why we love to talk about red flags. Atraumatic back pain is really common, a very common complaint in adults, and it's our job to make sure that it's just back pain and not something worse. The worst thing that we usually want to rule out as quickly as possible is cauda equina syndrome. 
We also want to identify that quickly, since if it goes on longer and longer, then the outcomes are worse and worse. Much of the classical signs, honestly like all classical signs, are not usually present. Your clinical exam, though, is still the first line against disease. So which parts of it actually matter, or does any of it? This study was a four-year retrospective study from a single center in the UK where self-reported symptoms and physical exam findings were collected prospectively. The inclusion criteria were patients with atraumatic back pain suspected of having cauda equina syndrome who underwent an MRI to establish a definitive diagnosis. Of the about 1,000 patients that were included, 111 of them had cauda equina compression on MRI. Multivariate analysis was then used to figure out what mattered most when you're assessing them. By way of self-reported symptoms, bilateral leg pain had the best odds ratio at 1.9. In terms of objective findings, absent bilateral ankle or knee reflexes had an odds ratio of 3.4. And then, after that, was dermatomal loss of sensation with an odds ratio of 1.7. Digital rectal exam did not demonstrate any benefit. What's that? You're disappointed? I'm sorry. I'm sure many of you were quite attached to performing such a test, but maybe you could stop. By way of sensitivity and specificity, all history and exam elements performed poorly. As a whole, most were more specific than they were sensitive. Like absent ankle jerk bilaterally, which had a specificity of 94%. That's not too bad. If we go into positive likelihood ratios, then there was really just one of them that wasn't worth scoffing at. The rest were pretty bad. And this was the absence of ankle reflexes, either bilaterally or unilaterally, which gave it a positive likelihood ratio of 3.1 and 2.4 respectively. Nothing to write home about in terms of negative likelihood ratios, unfortunately. So while this was interesting, it's just out of a single center. Though it does agree with past studies, also, a true gold standard would have been surgical findings rather than findings on an MRI, which should be attainable because hopefully all of these patients underwent surgery. I guess the moral of the story here is that you've still got to go with your gut. I feel like there could be room for a clinical decision aid in here, though. Heck, I could use a research project. Also, the digital rectal exam hasn't had much love from studies like this. Maybe we could take that test and shove, no, 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 that's exactly what that test wants. We should use shared decision-making, I guess. In a spoonful, this retrospective review showed bilateral lower extremity pain, sensory loss in a dermatome distribution, and loss of bilateral knee or ankle reflexes to best correlate with MRI findings of cauda equina compression. A digital rectal exam had little to no value. And then we have the third article, which was titled The Use of Rapid Sequence Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain as a Screening Tool for the Detection of Gross Intracranial Pathology in Children Presenting to the Emergency Department with a Chief Complaint of Persistent or Recurrent Headaches. Out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. You know, I've never actually seen a, a rapid MRI ordered or done at any of the sites that I work at. But then again, MRIs are a little bit harder to come by in Canada. So either way, I'm interested. Rapid MRIs can be used for screening assessments for some conditions. They're still quick like CTs, and they save on radiation, but they don't have that sedation that's needed for most children when they undergo a full MRI. This approach has been used for kids with suspected VP shunt pathologies, as well as post-traumatic brain injury. How about as a part of the workup for headache? 
This trial was a prospective study including 105 children aged 12 or less with the youngest being two months old. How you have a persistent or recurrent headache in a two-month-old though seems a little bit fishy either way and they had to have no other clear diagnosis. In this group, a single-shot T2 axial sequence MRI was obtained, and this took a mean time of 75 seconds. There was no sedation required, and all the studies were successful. The median age was 6.1 years old, and 78% of the studies were normal. 17 of the cases had sinusitis, 2 had mastoiditis, 1 had an ethmoid mass, 1 had an arachnoid cyst, 1 had an asymmetric white matter change, and one had a cerebellar mass causing hydrocephalus. So there are things to find on these scans. You could find significant pathology, which then would probably need a further workup, but if you find more benign pathology, which could still be explaining your headache, then they might not need further testing, and this test could be useful. Either way, this study population was from 2013 to 2015, so imaging might have improved since then, but this study really just shows that a screening MRI is still feasible in this patient population. But parents should be clearly told that this is just a screening test. In a spoonful, in children with persistent or recurrent headaches, a fast MRI is feasible and can detect relevant pathologies. Then we have the fourth and last article for this week, which was titled Comparing Two Doses of Intramuscular Ketorlac for Treatment of Acute Musculoskeletal Pain in the Military Emergency Department out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Ah, Ketorlac. This is one of my favorite medications because it is such a cool name, Ketorlac. Other medication names that I really, really like are Ondansetron and Anakinra. Anyway, another great thing about Ketorlac is that it's not an opioid, so it can spare you using opioids. And we've talked about the dosing of Ketorlac several times in the podcast before. Mostly to say that higher doses aren't better doses. Those trials, though, were using IV Ketorlac. What about intramuscular dosing? This was a single-blinded non-inferiority trial of 110 adults with acute MSK pain who were randomized to either 15 mg or 60 mg of intramuscular Ketorlac. The primary outcome was pain on a 100 mm visual analog scale measured at 60 minutes. At this time point, the 15 milligram group had a decrease in pain of 29.7 points versus the 60 milligram group, which had a decrease of 29.9 points. Clearly, this was not significant. Again, though, just like the other trials, what about the duration of pain control? Ketorlac is principally renally cleared from the body, has little distribution outside the vascular system, and has a half-life of 5 to 6 hours. If I have to dose my Ketorolac more often because I'm using a lower dose, then am I being that helpful? I just want a little bit further out. Ketorolac can be dosed every four to six hours. So let's just go out to every four to six hours, see how our pain lasts over that time period. Anyways, in a spoonful, Ketorolac continues to seem to have a dose effect ceiling. That's also true of giving it intramuscularly. 15 milligrams is non-inferior to 60 milligrams. All right, y'all know I love the wrap-up. Let's wrap up. First off, believe it or not, children with isolated vomiting have a viral cause which can be proven to be viral about a little over half the time. Though, in children with isolated vomiting, there's a 6% chance that they have another diagnosis which is actionable. That most common actionable diagnosis was a urinary tract infection. Second, the highest yield features of history and exam for Cauda equina syndrome as seen in this retrospective study were bilateral lower extremity pain, sensory loss in a dermatome, and loss of bilateral ankle or knee reflexes. The digital rectal exam was of little to no value. 
Third, a fast MRI for children with persistent headaches could be useful, and this study showed that it can be done successfully. 16% of the studies showed sinusitis in these children, and one study showed an intracranial mass. And then from the fourth article, Ketorolac 15 mg intramuscularly is no less effective at one-hour pain control than 60 mg. Now then, you've earned them. We offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where at the very same place you can find the links to all the articles that we've summarized, and if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.